It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell EMC solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash EMC. It is the Lockdown Bengals Podcast with your hosts, Joe Goodberry and Jake Lisko. Find us on Twitter at Joe Goodberry and at Jake underscore NFL. Please like, subscribe, and share as we try to grow this community and pump out daily Bengals content just for you. What up, Bengals fans, and welcome to another episode of the Lockdown Bengals podcast. I'm your host, Jake Lisko. Joe Goodberry will be here in just a few minutes with Travis Wingfield from the Lockdown Dolphins podcast as they discuss Tua Tunga Viola and Joe Burrow, I assume, and get into the Miami Bengals matchup coming up in Miami this weekend that will go a long way in determining the Bengals draft position come April 2020. Before then, I've got an update for you on A.J. Green's ankle injury and foot doctor visit in Green Bay, and an end-of-the-roster move that could actually be interesting if the Bengals give this guy a shot to play. The Bengals got an update on A.J. Green's visit with the foot specialist in Green Bay. He talked to Jeff Hobson today of Bengals.com and gave us the word that he was unlikely to play for the rest of the regular season. There's two games to go. It sounds like he's still progressing in his recovery, but he's not quite ready. He said that the doctor told him that it was a good thing he didn't rush back, that everything is eventually going to be okay. There are no lasting effects. It sounds like that was something that he was concerned about, but he made it clear to Jeff Hobson in that interview, there will be no lingering remnants and he should be able to have a full healthy offseason. Meanwhile, Tyler Dragon of the Cincinnati Enquirer reported that the Bengals would use a franchise tag on A.J. Green if they cannot reach a long-term deal. So it sounds like, as things stand right now, expect A.J. Green to be a Bengal at least in 2020, but A.J. Green has made it very clear that he does not want to be franchised. Although he will not sit out the entire year, he did say that he would take steps to protect himself. He might not come to some of those optional team activities in the offseason, but he said that he wouldn't likely sit out He knows that there's a lot of money that he'd be leaving on the table, but he still doesn't see it as something that is amenable to his primary position. He says that if the team doesn't want to commit to him long term, he understands that that's a business decision, but he's going to make business decisions to protect himself because he knows as a 31-year-old receiver, he's likely seeing one of his last contracts in the NFL. Tyler Dragon's report says that the Bengals are going to try to work out a deal with Green, but the sides are far apart and the Bengals are committed to that franchise tag if they can't come together. 
In other news, the Bengals waived Anthony Zettel today from the active roster. He was a defensive end. He also kicked inside for the Bengals. He's been part of the team for a few weeks. His first game with the Bengals, he actually played really well as a free agent signing. And since then, it sounds like he's fallen out of favor. ESPN's Ben Baby reporting that Bengals assistant coach Gerald Chapman, who primarily works with the defensive ends, got into Anthony Zettel in position drills at the end of the media's viewing period on Friday last week. Sounds like he has lost his spot, and instead the Bengals call up from the practice squad linebacker Brady Sheldon, who spent parts of seasons with the Green Bay Packers, the Cleveland Browns, and in his first year in 2017 as a college free agent from Ferris State, the Oakland Raiders. Sheldon posted some very elite athleticism numbers at his Ferris State Pro Day, running a 4-5-2 40-yard dash, which is in the 96th percentile for linebackers. He had an 89th percentile vertical jump and a 95th percentile broad jump. He was in the 70s for his agility testing, 77 percentile for the shuttle, and 71st percentile for the three-cone drill. So a lot of indicators that Brady Sheldon is a really good athlete. He's now 25 years old. At his pro day, he was listed at 6'5", 220 pounds. So he's a little bit light for the position, but this is a kind of player that has been successful at the linebacker position lately, and he's had a chance to put on weight since coming out three years ago. Now three years into NFL workout regimes, NFL diet programs, Brady Sheldon is a guy that has the athletic tools that you're looking for at the linebacker position. And his overall athletic score, compiled by Kent Lee Platt on Twitter at MathBomb, is 9.19 or 92nd percentile for linebackers all time. That's a really good score And I'll be curious to see whether Sheldon can get onto the field at all on defense. The Bengals have been looking for something at linebacker, rotating guys onto the field. We've seen a few snaps each week for back-of-the-roster guys like Jordan Evans and Hardy Nickerson. But for the most part, those guys are playing on special teams, and I expect that if Sheldon is active on game day, which at this point is a long shot, but it could happen, we'd probably see him more on special teams than we would see him on defense. That being said... Anytime you have an athletic linebacker, it's worth seeing what he's got in today's NFL. And if Sheldon can put it together the way that he put it together for a few games in the preseason, both with the Browns and with the Packers, he had some really solid preseason games. There's a reason to believe that he could stick around as a backup linebacker. So it'll be interesting to see if this small school guy can put together any success in the last couple games of the season for the Bengals going against Miami and Cleveland in Week 17. That'll do it for your primary news update for me. Next up, Joe will be here with Travis from the Locked On Dolphins podcast to talk about formerly the finale of the Tank for Tua season, now the Burrow Bowl. So stick around to get a preview for this weekend's game. Guys, let's talk about sex. Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up as twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Let me tell you, we get free samples, and if you think Marshawn Lynch has a good stiff arm, you've seen nothing yet. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package. 
So no in-person doctor visits, no waiting at the pharmacy, the, and best of all, no awkwardness. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than the pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code Locked On. Just pay the $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code Locked On to try it free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the Locked On Bengals podcast. And this is Joe Goodberry, Locked On Bengals with Locked On Dolphins. It's the crossover Wednesday with Travis Wingfield. We've got the Tank Bowl, the Burrow Bowl, for us, for our, for our perspective at this point. It was originally going to be the Tua Bowl, remember that? And that's kind of uh, falling off a little bit here. But Travis, uh, thanks for joining us. And, you know, how's everything going for you? Yeah, man, you, you mentioned the Tank Bowl. We talked about this months ago on Twitter about how we we're going to have this big preview of the Tank game. But it looks like right now the Bengals are about to secure that first overall pick. And like you mentioned, man, it, it changes every single year. It seems like we get this quarterback that comes from nowhere. And this year it was Joe Burrow. I'm still fully invested in the Tua Tungavailoa idea, even though the hip is a concern. I just that's my guy. He's been my guy for a long time now. And if we're going to tank an entire season away, we better get a franchise quarterback out of it. Do you think the Dolphins are tanking? Because the Bengals fans have struggled to understand if they're just completely inept as a franchise and a coaching staff or if they're actually tanking. kind of feels like they're tanking. But what's the Dolphins' perspective on what they've done this year? I think you've got two mixed messages, one coming from the front office and the people that put the team in place and the other coming from the coaching staff because you watch Brian Flores' temperament and his mentality and where he came from working 15 years in New England under Bill Belichick. This dude eats, breathes, and sleeps football. And I know all coaches do, but he is just an old-school football coach that really takes losing and not on the scoreboard but on individual play basis, on not executing the fundamentals. He takes that stuff to heart. And I think this young team that basically basically is made up about half of the roster of guys that wouldn't be in the league if it wasn't for what the Miami Dolphins did this year. He's gotten them to kind of galvanize around each other, and that's how they won three games. So the coaching staff is putting it all on the line. We've seen, Joe, we've got fake field goals, fake punts, fourth down conversions out our backside. It's been a crazy aggressive year as far as the coaches go. But you look at the front office, and it's just trade after trade. And they cut guys that were going to play significant reps, whether it was TJ McDonald or trading Kiko Alonso, even though both those players, to me, weren't going to give you much value. They just lopped off all of the cash commitments in the future. They lopped off a lot of the veteran experience and talent on this team and basically put themselves in a position where they have no future cash commitments they can't get away from outside of guys like Xavier Howard, you know, the best players on the football team. And they've done well to position themselves for the future. But I think the idea was this was kind of a throwaway season and they weren't going to go out and effectively try to lose games, but they did their damnedest to put this roster in the worst position possible. It's very like major league, the movie, the baseball movie. It's very major league like in that they just stripped this roster down of any talent and said, here you go, Coach Flores, do your best. And I, I know you have been in on Tua for a long time. So when they won their game much earlier than the Bengals won theirs, uh, Dolphins won their first game in the, in the what week five or week four. And did, did you step back then and go, oh, no, or was it all right, let's see where it goes? Yeah, the first win was against the Jets and against Adam Gase. So there was a little bit of a like, vin, you know, vindictive aspect of the game there. But they still had the Bengals on the schedule. So I thought, OK, this is a blip on the radar. They'll lose the next 
whatever many games and finish one and 15 with a better or worse, I should say, strength of schedule than the Bengals and we'll be okay. But then they come back the next week and beat Indianapolis on the road. And so at that point, like to me, the two a wish was gone. And I was just beside myself. Like I immediately got into some Jordan love tape and like just kind of started to try to, to ease the pain a little bit. Then Tua gets injured, and now all of a sudden we're back in the game. But is he worth the risk? We'll find out. But it's going to be a crazy offseason for the Dolphins. Yeah, for sure. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of uh, cap space and draft picks. And so this year it's been – it seems like it's been fun from our perspective watching the Dolphins at the at, – not only because, you know, we're trying to lose at some point here and it's seeing the Dolphins win and find ways to win. But from your perspective, like you said, all the trick plays and the team actually competing and showing improvement – is this a, a surprise for you for this to actually be entertained by this Dolphins team this year? Yeah, I'm blown away by the fact that I actually was considering hoping for a win against the Giants just because I want to see Flores continue to build the program. And they've gotten production out of guys that you wouldn't think otherwise would be in the future plans. I think on Locked on Dolphins, you and I mentioned how the Bengals might have 20 guys that they're going to go forward with. And that's kind of about where the Dolphins are. And we get this production that came from nowhere from Devontae Parker. You get Mike Gesicki, the tight end, developing in year number two. You find an undrafted cornerback in Nick Needham, who's had a very good year as an undrafted guy. You move Eric Rowe to safety after a one-year, you know, let's see if he can stay healthy for once in his career contract. And all of a sudden, he's played really well at safety. So they've done well to develop some guys that we didn't know about going into the season. And that was always the number one goal for me as far as, you know, getting this thing turned around and being the team that can compete with the Patriots next year or in two years or whatever it might be. And yeah, you're going to put all those free agent dollars into play. You're going to use these high premium draft picks. They've got six picks in the top two rounds in the next uh, two years. They can definitely get some premium talent that way. But getting these guys on the bottom part of the roster that can play within the scheme, play within the program, and you know they can come in in a pinch and be successful, it just gives you a better hope for depth. And to have that Patriots-like mentality in the future where it is actually a next man up philosophy and you don't lose one or two players and your season goes completely off the rails. That's kind of the hope. I know it's ambitious and especially right now from where the Dolphins sit, but I have confidence in this coaching staff and in this front office to put things together because this coaching staff to me is the best one they've had since Don Shula was here. And I know that's high praise for a coaching staff who is three and 11 at this stage, but the way they've gotten this team to be fundamentally sound and to not commit penalties and just do the small things, the small details, you know, the do your job mentality, the fact that they've got that implemented and you're number one to me is very encouraging. You mentioned uh, Mike Gusecki and, you know, after last year, I think people were down and wondering if he's ever going to, hit that stride or, or even see a glimpse of what he was at Penn State. What would you say is the biggest difference? Is he the, is he the surprise player for you this year? You mentioned Devontae Parker too, but if it's Gasecki, what is the biggest difference for you from last year to this year? Yeah, it's got to be Parker first, but Gasecki would be right up there. And I think the biggest thing for me with him was that when he got off the line of scrimmage last year, whether it was in line or flexed out wide, he avoided contact like the plague. Like he did not want to be disrupted. That was kind of his game at Penn State, a souped up wide receiver that kind of elevated above those lesser talents in college. And now we're watching him actually work through reroutes. We're watching him get to the catch point at the top of the stem and break off that route with physicality and not shy away from that. There's actually a rep 
prep. I just put it up on my timeline on my film review from the All-22, and he he works through a reroute. He gets to the top of the stem and works back to the football and uses his body to shield the defender so he can't come through it for a pass breakup, and we just didn't see that last year. We were way more likely to watch him run into the secondary, trip and fall over, and ruin the entire pass concept, but this year he's way more comfortable playing faster and playing much stronger too. So what would you say about Devontae Parker? We kind of got a first-round guy that we're um, kind of hoping turns the page at some point here, even though we've gotten some flashes out of John Ross and some fun plays. I mean, he, he is a physical freak. It's more injuries for him. What was the issue with Parker for so long, and why? What's What flipped this year for him? That might actually be a good parallel for you with John Ross because Devontae Parker had to learn how to be a professional, and that's all it was. He just he didn't know how to prepare his body. He even talked about it in an article on ESPN a couple weeks ago that he would stay up late and play video games till 2 o'clock in the morning. He would eat chicken nuggets for dinner, and this league and the way the league is tailored towards premier athletes in 2019, you just can't do that. Like You have to be seven days a week committed to the craft, and I think he finally is. Like He has a weight or a, a nutrition plan finally he has a weightlifting regimen that he does that gets him into shape and i talked about it in training camp i actually had a tweet that went like dolphins viral because i talked about how good he looked and when you're a scout looking at players bodies you like to talk about the butt right because the power comes from the butt (laughs) i mentioned his butt and that got a bunch of tweets and read and likes and all that stuff and now here he is he's been healthy all year long he used to miss practices almost on a weekly basis he was deactivated last year as a healthy scratch and now this year he's he's recommitted himself to the game and it's definitely shown up in the way he's practiced every single day and been available on game days and now he's finally producing like a first round pick should yeah, and I want to get your take on the uh, draft prospects, especially the quarterbacks that are coming up as, you know, this is kind of what this big game signifies, especially from the Bengals' perspective. But uh, before we do that, what would you say is uh, the upside or is there any left in Josh Rosen? Is he just a lost cause at this point or is there still a future for him as a starter in this league? Just go ahead and preface this with a caveat that I was never a Josh Rosen fan, so okay. people people might kind of you know assign some bias to my opinion of him. But when I was there for training camp, this guy showed up to the practice field after everybody. He was always the last guy out there. He would go through the drills, throwing on air to stationary coaches with you know just a center, the quarterback, and a coach standing 15 yards downfield. He would miss those throws. He would get into the you know team portions of practice, and he would have bad body language. He would sail passes. He would be late. They would have to break the play down and run it again. I just never saw this guy as, yeah, he's a smart kid. He is, you know, a positive impact for change as far as like climate change and being very, you know, conscious of the world's problems. But that doesn't translate into football acumen to me. And this is a guy that is always late on his reads. This is a complex offense that really empowers the quarterback who can see the coverage pre-snap and determine what he has to do post-snap. And that's what we've seen with Brian Fitzpatrick. When Rosen was in there, he was always a beat late. He got receivers killed going over the middle because of that. He was late on those reads and had to tuck the ball and take sacks. So to me, he has to pretty much rework his game as far as the cerebral aspect from the ground up because it was just not good enough. That was the case, I thought, in Arizona. Go back to UCLA. He gave us a a grand reveal in training camp that he had never had to ID a Mike linebacker in his entire football career until he got to Miami. And we were like, what? How How does that happen? Like, How do you get to this stage and never have to do that? So I just think there's a long way for him to go. And does he want to be that guy? I I just don't know how much the football matters to him. Hmm. So moving on to the draft and the upcoming 
2020 draft. Jeez, man, where does the time go? But right. <laughs> you, since you spend so much time on quarterbacks, and I, I generally like your takes, I end up reading a lot of your Saturday pieces that uh, review the the college da- games, especially when they focus on quarterbacks. Uh, walk walk me through what you think are the top three guys in this class for quarterback. If that's still your main target, if the Dolphins sit at let's say three, four, five, wherever they end up, uh, who do you like? Can you give me a little bit of a brief scouting report on each guy? Yeah, you bet. We're about a month away from the uh, declaration day, and I think that what happens in the next month is going to kind of determine my quarterback board because does Tua Tungavailoa declare for the draft as he go back to Alabama? I have to imagine if he declares, that's because he's received word that he'll be a top 10 pick, and that would mean that the hip should be at least one day back to the way it was. And if that's the case for me, he's quarterback one because he's been doing it on you know the, the biggest stage for three years. You go all the way back to his freshman year, and he came into that game against Georgia and led the yep. Crimson Tide back to a, an impressive 13-point comeback against a really good Georgia defense. And at that stage of his career, he ran the ball like 12 times in that game, was a zone read type of quarterback. Even though he's not the most fleet of foot quarterback, he was effective enough in the running game to get that done. Then you go to his sophomore season last year when he really balled out. He was all about the vertical shots and taking deep throws down the field over and over again. And then this year, he kind of refined that and kept that part of his game, but also incorporated the check down and taking what the defense gives you and living to fight another day. And I just, I can't be more impressed with him because of what he does, you know, manipulating the defense post-snap. You mentioned it on Locked On Dolphins. He does get in trouble sometimes when they roll coverage and disguise things, and he can get beat that way from like a backside safety coming over and making a play. But his accuracy and the ball placement, the deep ball, the acumen to know how to move the defense and to put them where you want them to so you can attack accordingly. To me, he is just so sharp between the ears and you match that with accuracy. To me, he's one of the best quarterbacks to come out in recent memory if he's healthy. Now, Joe Burrow how do you ignore Joe Burrow at this point? Because I think even the biggest, you know, detractors of Joe Burrow eventually became convinced because of the unreal production and the weekly highlight reel that he put together. You go to that Georgia game. I think I tweeted about it in the SEC championship game, that play where he spun out of the two tackles and threw it down the field. Like, That's going to be a play we see for years and years to come. And that was his entire season. And the way Teams tried to defend him with multiple looks. They would drop coverage. Didn't matter. He found the open guy. He would go deep to Jamar Chase, give his guy a chance to make a play. They would blitz guys. Didn't matter. He would throw the ball right in behind those guys to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and find space and find gaps. The spatial awareness in the pocket, the Tony Romo scramble ability. uh, He's just... It's super amazing to me what he's done this year. And you compare the fact that he was a basketball player. I think a lot of that athleticism shows up and you can, you can rest assured that he can do that at the next level because he has that inherent trait to feel for pressure and to get away from it. So those two guys to me could go one and two in the draft. They probably should go one and two in the draft. If health, if healthy, I am not a Justin Herbert guy. I think that you didn't learn anything more about him this year. We talked about it on locked on dolphins. He, it was crazy to me how often Oregon would have a game-winning drive ahead of them and they would run the ball and throw screen passes and just took the ball out of his hands and it worked because Oregon's offensive line is the best in the country. But to me... Herbert, he shrinks in the big moments. I think his footwork is inconsistent. He feels phantom pressure, and that affects his accuracy. He's not consistent in the short to intermediate areas. He has all the big physical traits you love, the strong arm. He can run straight line speed. He's not quick and agile, I think, like Tua and even Joe Burrow are when it comes to pocket pressure. But I think that if you're going to draft Justin Herbert— 
I, I think he's going to get a coach fired, in my opinion, because they're going to continue to go back to this well of like the strong arm and all that stuff, and it's just not going to work out for him. And the last guy to me is Jordan Love, who I think the world of his upside, but I'm also very consciously aware of the mistakes that he makes, the poor decisions this year. Now, granted, Utah State lost everybody off that offense, but his production never really got back to you know stabilized more picks than more than he had touchdown passes. But the things that he can do with the football, I've never seen them before. And I'm talking better than Patrick Mahomes and Kyler Murray in terms of the way he can whip that thing from any platform, from any arm angle, with just velocity and touch at the same time. Super impressive. So to me, he's your best bet if you maybe want to go at the back end of the first round and draft a developmental quarterback later on. Can't stand Justin Herbert. Love Tua. Love Joe Burrow. Yeah, because the Dolphins have those two picks that are in the right now yeah. in the early 20s. You have to consider that, right? Is it? You know, because like, there's a lot still to develop with Tua. If he's healthy, it's the pick for you guys with the first pick, right? And then you you, you figure it out after that. But uh, if it's not, if that if it's not Tua there with, with whatever you stand, second, third, fourth, fifth in the draft, uh, and you come back in the top 20, and you know, like Lamar Jackson, who was the last pick in the draft that year, and there's been guys that have been second half of first round and have been productive. It's going to be hopefully right on the on the table. Hopefully, it's not. Justin Herbert on there and someone else already takes that uh, risk, right? You know, someone else trades up, but maybe it's Jordan Love. And how do you feel about Jalen Hurts? Jalen Hurts to me has a long way to go in his development for the passing game. I think that the NFL has become more evolved in the sense that you can win with a guy who primarily is a runner and Lamar Jackson, you know, we, we'll talk about him probably for the next decade about this. I still, you know, I think Lamar Jackson's running prowess is better than his throwing prowess, but he makes it work because of the design of the offense and the fact that he can get you into situations where he doesn't have to be as accurate. He's got more open windows, but yeah. to me, Jalen Hurts, I, I don't think that he has the throwing acumen to really excel as a true drop back pocket passing quarterback in this league to really have an offense that can be, you know, that can evolve around him. I think you have to have a specific plan in place for him. But if the Dolphins do go that route, to me, Isaiah Simmons is probably the best player in this draft besides Chase Young and maybe the two quarterbacks. I would love to build the defense around him because this Dolphins defense is positionless in the way they attack things, much like the Patriots, you know, Brian Flores coming from that Patriots tree. I think that Isaiah Simmons could be your Derwin James. You could build the defense around him, and then maybe you come back at the back end of round one. Take that flyer on Jordan Love because you've got a bunch more picks. You've got more picks next season, and if Jordan Love doesn't develop the way you want him to, and you get yourself back in a position in 2021 where you can get Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields or whoever it might be, then just do that. Like just commit to finding the right quarterback. Don't go all in on Justin Herbert just because he's there. All right. So you asked me this and I'm going to ask you then the same question because I liked it. Uh, if the Dolphins win, why? And if the Dolphins lose, why? I was glad you gave me the offensive line mention as far as the Bengals uh, defensive line attacking the Dolphins offensive line. You mentioned uh, Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins and all those boys that can put pressure on a, on a quarterback. And the Dolphins interior three and their left tackle, for that matter, too, have got to be the worst foursome in the history of the National Football League. Like Dan Kilgore cannot anchor. He cannot reach <laughs> block. He can't do all these things that Geno Atkins is going to give him problems with. So I would be very surprised if the Bengals don't completely wreck shop against the Dolphins offensive line. Now, where Miami might win. Oh, man, the roster is getting so depleted every single week. I think Devontae Parker's really our kind of shining guy right now on the offense. The Dolphins' offense has had the most success when they've gotten one-on-one -on -one vertical opportunities to Devontae Parker and to Mike Gesicki. So if your cornerbacks can hold up against those guys when they get the one-on-one -on -one situations, the Bengals should be fine. But they will go after those those 
one-on-one matchups. And if Parker can go up and elevate for the 50-50 balls, which have been 70-30 balls for him this season, then Miami could find a way to win. All right, so do you have a score prediction? I do think the Bengals are going to win this game. I think the Dolphins, I think the the final thread broke last week against the Giants, and they even added Raekwon McMillan, another starter to the injured reserve. I think we're up to 14 starters now on injured reserve for the year. So I'll go Bengals 21, Dolphins 17. Oh, man, that makes me so nervous. They just, Bengals just have to lose one more game, yeah. and they lock in Joe Burrow. And you know what? It sounds like best-case scenario is Bengals get Burrow, Dolphins get Tua, because I even, even think Bengals fans, they heard me talk about Tua for so long. They want to see him go to some, some not in the division, but I don't think that's going to happen anyways, but they want to see him go somewhere and, and have success and build. So Miami sounds like a, a fine place for us because we have – I don't think we harbor any ill will towards the Dolphins, except for one Thursday night game where Geno Atkins tore his ACL, and then you guys <laughs> won on a um, on a sack of Andy Dalton, Cameron Wake stunting back to the middle. That one stands out to us. But, uh, Travis, thanks for doing this with me. Good luck the rest of the year. Um, good luck this week especially. I really hope the Dolphins <laughs> have their best game of the season. But uh, and, and hopefully we'll do this again maybe towards draft time or uh, uh, maybe at the Senior Bowl we'll get together. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I should be at the Senior Bowl, and I would love to do another podcast with you about the draft, Joe. That sounds great, Travis. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Did you watch the 2020 Reds with higher expectations than a first-round wild-card exit of epic proportions? Did you think that the Reds hitting would come around with the signings that they made last offseason? Are you wondering who is asking you all of these questions? Hi, my name is Jeff Carr, and I host the Locked On Reds podcast each and every day, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Throughout the offseason, I'm going to take a look at these Reds, how they fix what didn't work in 2020, and how they continue their success in 2021. But wait, there's more. I'll also have interesting interviews with players, writers, and everyone in between talking about the Cincinnati Reds. Come join me on the Locked On Reds podcast each and every day.